Galatians 2, find ourselves in verses 17 through 21 this evening. Title of the message, Crucified with Christ. It's an amazing truth to witness in this life that our thoughts and our actions, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant or irrelevant, can lead to huge misunderstandings or can guide down a path that is um, less than what we would want when it comes to truths which are far more important. One of the examples of what I mean here is the seemingly innocuous parental choice of telling their children that Santa Claus exists. On the surface, this is little more than a fun way, right, to engage your children's imagination at a time of year that is supposed to be special. But beneath the fairy tale is really a lie, is it not? Beneath the fairy tale is a lie. And while we would never intend it, when a person is lied unto and he finds out, he might very well respond not with a, oh, ha-ha, or oh, that was funny, or oh, yeah, I was a little kid and I believed that. He might very well respond with resentment or might take from that little game, if nothing else, might draw from that a, a underlying concept that lies are acceptable as long as their intent is not malicious. Neither lesson is what we want our children to learn, but both lessons are possible based upon this seemingly innocent and simple action which we would never seek to intend to teach a lesson, but which might, by proxy, teach a lesson. The same can be said of any doctrine of truth. The little ways in which we fail to reflect truth in our lives can form a foundation of disregard that carries over into other areas of our lives and into the lives of those unto whom we minister. We teach that we must obey authority, right? I hope you teach that to your children. I hope that you believe that. I hope that if you were having a conversation with a man at work or, or if you were having a conversation with another family, you would teach that obeying our authorities is an important thing because, after all, the Bible says that. And God is one of our authorities and it's important that we would obey God. But then our children watch how we live. So in Bible time that morning, we say, children, it's important to obey your authorities. And then our children see us driving well above the speed limit quite intentionally. Or they see us running a stop line. A stop sign. There we go. A stop sign. And there could grow in our children a fundamental disconnect between what is true and what is acceptable. We teach that our words ought to be pure, and good to the use of edifying. But then when we turn around and maliciously tease our family members or tear them down in the name of all lighthearted fun, we begin to form a disconnect in our children between what is true and what is acceptable. Even though our children understand what the Bible says, that you should obey your authorities or that you should speak to the good of edifying, they begin to form in their hearts and minds simply through the unspoken little things that we do a disconnect so that they, they can say something to the effect of it's okay to obey my authorities unless I don't think I'm going to get caught or unless I 
have some need that I perceive is above what my authorities have laid down, or unless it's inconvenient for me. And all of those little things can teach a body of truth that we would never intend to teach. Last week, we begun considering Paul's confrontation of Peter's actions. Do you remember that? Whereby Peter separated himself from fellowship with Gentile Christians in Antioch in fear of offending the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that had come from Jerusalem. And we parked, actually, right in the middle of Paul's message on the concept of justification. He was talking to Peter and he parked, he, he mentioned justification and, and we parked on that and spent time learning on the doctrine of justification, which we defined as the free act of grace whereby God pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on account of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this evening, we pick up our study of Paul's rebuke in verse 17. But in order that we get the context, let's begin in verse 14, and we'll read through verse 21. Please follow along as I read. Excuse me, I'm not even where I need to be. I, I, uh, if, you, if you thought I was looking a little lost this morning after the busy day yesterday, I'm, I'm really uh, starting off on the right foot this evening. All right, let's get to Galatians. I was in 2 Corinthians 11 for some reason. And uh, here we are. I found it. All right, now, <laughs> excuse me, Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Paul has just reasserted the truth that man is justified by faith without the works of the law. That's what we finished on last week in verse 16. Man is justified by faith without the works of the law. He then says to Peter in verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. And remember, Paul is speaking in a very Jewish context here. He's saying, look, we are Jews, Peter. And as Jews, we have been given the law. But we know that the law doesn't justify. If the law justified, then we'd still be in Judaism. But we're not in Judaism because we know that even we as Jews cannot be justified by the law, much less Gentiles be justified by the law. And he's laying this foundation. 
there's quite a, a bit going on in the Greek here in verse 17, but it's pretty well rendered in our King James Bibles. Paul introduces a hypothetical that seeks to demonstrate how Peter's seemingly simple action, seemingly innocent or at least minimal action of separating himself from the Gentile believers in Antioch actually makes a rather bold statement and indeed a deeply erroneous theological statement that not only was he making it, but that he was teaching to the other believers in Antioch. All men who were there that day as believers had recognized that justification before God is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But it seems as though, at least in Peter's eyes, these Jewish believers had a real problem with the idea that fellowshipping with these um, believers, these Gentile believers, exclusively on the basis of their nationality, uh, was um, they, they had a problem with that. I'm sorry. The Jewish believers, it seems, had a problem with the idea of fellowshipping with these Gentile believers. And this problem seemed to be based exclusively on their nationality, the fact that they were Gentiles, the fact that they grew up in a religion that refused to allow them to associate with Gentiles. And they were having a hard time getting over that. And that seems to be the perspective here. It's an attitude which goes just beyond personal preference, and it places them squarely into the place of sinfulness. They are literally withholding fellowship for no reason. They are withholding Christian fellowship simply because of a person's nationality or a person's race. And this is unbiblical. And Paul says that by separating himself, that by Peter separating himself from the Gentile believers, in order not to offend these Jewish believers, Peter was indirectly stating that he had been doing something wrong in the eyes of God by fellowshipping with these Gentiles. That if Peter felt compelled when the Jews came to separate himself from the Gentiles, he was admitting, however indirectly, that he shouldn't have been with the Gentiles to, to begin with. And that's what Paul is trying to highlight here. If when we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Since it was Jesus himself, through Peter no less, <laughs> who declared that Gentiles are not unclean. Peter's actions can be interpreted in only one of two ways. Either Peter is wrong in calling unclean that which Christ has called clean, that Peter is wrong in getting up and separating himself from the Gentiles and going and fellowshipping with the Jews. Either Peter's wrong in, doing, in that action or when Jesus commanded the apostles not to separate from the Gentiles, not to call the Gentiles unclean, Jesus was commanding them to do something that was sinful in the eyes of God, and therefore Jesus is a minister of sin. I hope you're following this with me. In other words, Peter is either dead wrong in what he's doing, or he is teaching that Jesus was dead wrong in allowing them to do it to begin with. And we know which one's correct, right? Peter is dead wrong in this. And this is exactly what Paul says. He says, God forbid 
that we should consider Jesus a minister of sin. And if Jesus isn't a minister of sin, then following Jesus' teachings must lead us to God. And if Jesus' teachings lead us to God, then to oppose Jesus' teachings by refusing to fellowship with Gentile believers simply because they're Gentiles must be wrong. So Peter, you're wrong. And by the way, Peter, what you're teaching... But it's just getting up and fell. It's, it's just separating from Gentiles. Peter, what you are teaching, however indirectly, is that Jesus is a minister of sin. What you are teaching, however indirectly, is that we ought to be separating ourselves from Gentile believers. But since Jesus is the one that told us not to do that, Jesus is a minister of sin. Wow. No way would Peter ever have intentionally been teaching that Jesus is a minister of sin. That, that, that through Jesus we are compelled to do that which God hates. But that is the power of these small, indirect little things that we do. These inconsistencies in how we live our lives as opposed to what we preach and teach that can lead to all manner of problems. So where is it exactly that we're talking about where Jesus states that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile? Well, we see it all over the place in Paul's teaching. We see it in Romans. We see it in 1 Corinthians. We see it all over the place. We, in fact, we saw it last week as we did that little jaunt through Romans 2 through 5. We even saw there that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, that we are all condemned under sin. But I'd like us to venture even farther back than, than Pauline epistles. In fact, I'd like us to venture back before Paul was a Christian. I'd like us to venture to the event very early in the life of the church where God announced without question that the Gentiles were not to be viewed as unclean. And that takes us to Acts chapter 10. You can turn there if you'd like. It will be on the screen. Uh, but we'll spend a few minutes here. We will be turning back to Galatians chapter 2. So within the context of this particular passage of Scripture, um, Peter, uh, th there's a man named Cornelius, and this man is a Gentile, and he has seen a vision. And in that vision, he, he, he is a devout man, and he's been seeking the Lord, and this angel tells him to go and to find Peter, and that Peter will tell him what he needs to do. And so we pick up in Acts chapter 10, verse 9 with this. Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. That would be noon. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. In this account, Peter is confronted by a vision of unclean animals, animals which, according to the law of Moses, would defile a man ceremonially. These were you don't you don't do this. It, it was something that even even under the the actual law of Moses, not the crazy standards that the Pharisees ended up concocting. Even under the actual law of Moses, this was a big big no no. You ate one of these, you even 
you, you killed one of these, you came in contact with one of these, you could not go into the temple of God. You, you had to go through an entire cleansing ritual. It was a big, big no. And so Peter says, not so, Lord. And you know when I read this, do you know what I hearken back to? Ezekiel. Where Ezekiel in the Old Testament, he had been a, a Levite and he, was, he had never been able to actually live out his his course as a Levite because he was taken into captivity before then. But God asked him, if you remember, as one of the signs to Israel, God asked him to cook over um, waste, over human waste. And Ezekiel said, Lord, I've never defiled myself and this would defile me. Would you please give me an alternative? And God graciously said, yeah, okay, you can, you can have an alternative. And he said, okay, cook over cow waste instead. And that would not defile him. It would not make him unclean. And so he was able to get around that and the Lord graciously accepted that. And, and so Peter has a similar situation here where the Lord says, kill and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Notice what God then says. And this is in verses 15 and 16. He, the voice spake unto him again the second time, what God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. So the difference between Ezekiel and Peter is that in Ezekiel's case, they were still under the law, and in Ezekiel's case, this was unclean. This was wrong, and so God withheld him from having to do that. In this case, God says, hey, look, Peter, don't call that unclean which I have cleansed, which I have said is clean, you can do this. And notice it says this was done thrice. If God has called this meat just as good as any other meat, don't contradict God and say that there's something wrong with it or that it's inferior in some way. And as a point of emphasis, as I mentioned, the Lord gave this message to him three times. Why three? In the Hebrew language, there are no emphatic words. There's no such thing as an emphatic modifier. In, in most languages, we have emphatic forms of words. The emphatic form of clean is cleaner. And then even one more, cleanest, right? Clean, cleaner, cleanest. That's emphatic forms of the word clean. Hebrew does not have emphatic forms of words. So the way that they emphasize something is through repetition. In fact, three... In, in much the same way that in, in any language you'd have normal and then the two emphatics, clean, clean, or cleanest, three different forms, you have a repetition in Hebrew. If you repeated it twice, it's important. If you repeat it three times, it's essential. This is why in Isaiah chapter 6, as Isaiah sees the seraphim around the throne of God, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Three times they said it. The highest possible emphasis in the Hebrew language in order to declare God's holiness. It would be like us saying, holy, holy, or holiest, holiest of all. When we call God the holiest, holier than anything else, the holiest. That's what they were saying by saying, holy, holy, holy. So Peter knows here that God means business. If I've called it clean, don't you call it unclean. And in this vision, Peter sees these animals and God says, these are clean, kill them and eat them. Now the text goes on to say that while Peter was thinking about this, he had the vision and now he's, 
deeply meditating on what this vision means. You'd think it would be somewhat simple. As I read it, I say, well, okay, right? Animals are clean. It's good. But, but Peter knew that there was something more to it. So he's meditating upon this vision. And then a servant of the Gentile named Cornelius, while he's still meditating, knocks on the door and says, I've got to talk to Peter. The Lord sent me to this house and said, Peter's going to be here and I've got to talk to this Peter. So he tells him the story about how his master saw this vision and that he, he, he was devout and that in the vision... This angel said, go to Peter and he will tell you what you need to do. And Peter says, okay, I will go back with you. And in this moment where this servant of Cornelius comes and speaks to Peter, something clicks in Peter's mind about the vision that he just saw. And when he speaks to Cornelius, this is what he says in Acts 10.28. We skip to that verse. He said unto them, you know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And here it is that we see God explicitly declaring to the man Peter that there is no man, Jew or Gentile, that is common or unclean. There is no man that because of his nationality, his place of origin, his gender, uh, no man or woman according to their race, no age, there is nothing physically that, or, or, or in heritage that separates one man from another in the eyes of God. As the book of Acts says, we are all one race. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is only one race and that that race is the human race. Everything else is just externals. So Peter was at the very forefront. He was the tip of the spear of the divine declaration that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, are one in Christ. And here in Galatians 2.17, we find Peter on the wrong end of that. And in fact, we see that though he was the one that preached this message to begin with, and remember when we talked about the Council of Jerusalem, Peter got up and said, yeah, I was there. I was there when God said that Gentiles are, are clean. I was there. And he validated Paul's message that he can preach salvation to the Gentiles without the law, without circumcision. And yet here, one action is speaking just as loud as all those words. One, one action where Peter separates himself from Gentile believers in order to be with these Jews who he was afraid might get offended might have gone so far, if Paul had not spoken up, of almost completely invalidating everything that Peter had said in the past because he just showed through his actions something entirely different. And that's what Paul is rebuking Peter for. And then Paul says this in verse 18, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. In Peter's case, Paul warns him, if you build again the foundation of legalism that has been destroyed, you are without question in the wrong. If you begin to build again this whole concept of Gentiles and Jews as Christians being separated, that which we have been tearing down, that which we have been fighting against, 
If you begin to build again this foundation, if you begin to build again this, this false doctrine that we've destroyed, you make yourself a transgressor. We'll come back to this direct teaching, but the principle transcends just legalism, doesn't it? If I attempt to build again any sort of doctrinal error that I've destroyed in my life, I make myself a transgressor. If I attempt to build any kind of moral self-justification that I lived under prior to coming to Christ, if I try to build it again, I make myself a transgressor. I fall back into sin. If I build again the sins and the bad habits which I once destroyed in my life, I make myself a transgressor. I fall back into sin. If I have found victory over a sinful action, if I have found victory over a sinful habit, or just something spiritually deeply unhealthy, an unhealthy spiritual predisposition, and then through time and circumstance I allow those things to work their way back into my life, I likewise am building again that which I destroyed and I'm making myself a transgressor. At the beginning of this sermon, I gave some rather typical examples of ways in which we as Christians uh, sanctify the very sins we preach against. We tell our kids to obey mom and dad, but have absolutely no problem disobeying civil law. We tell our kids not to steal, but we have no problem um, taking that song off the internet or taking that movie off the internet. We preach temperance, but we have no control over our eating or over our spending or over some aspect of our lives. We preach kindness, but we live in all manner of unforgiveness and selfishness. There are victories that you can look back upon in your life. Times when you had finally conquered that sinful habit through the help of the Lord. Times in your spiritual walk where you had overcome. And perhaps you find yourself back in them again today. Unhealthy spiritual predispositions. Maybe some element of legalism. Some element of license in your spiritual walk that you had overcome, but you find yourself back there again. There are fantastic spiritual habits which at one time you had fostered in your life which now are little more than a memory. And Paul's warning to Peter here is this. Jesus is not the minister of sin, which means Peter was the one that was transgressing. And if he insists on building these walls of separation, whether all the time or only in certain company, which Jesus had already completely torn down, and compelled him to tear down, he will find himself on the wrong end of Jesus, on the wrong end of the Word of God. He will find himself going down a slippery slope into a place of transgression. And so too we, when we tear down the strongholds that Satan has placed in our lives, if we allow, if we build again those things which we have destroyed, be warned. You might say, well, I'm a lot stronger now than I used to be. Well, yeah, that issue when I was younger, oh yeah, it was such a big, de- it was such a big deal to me that I get that out of my life and now I'm a little more mature and I, I, I've got a better handle on my Christian life and so I've allowed some of that back. Well, if we build again the things which we've destroyed, 
the scriptures tell us we make ourselves a transgressor. Much opposed to the idea of separating from the Gentiles on the basis of the law, Paul says that he, through the law, is dead to the law. The law was not abolished in Christ, was it? The law was fulfilled in Christ. The law was not abolished, it was fulfilled. That is what Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. On the day Jesus died, the law didn't die. Much rather, the law lives on today. There's still some of the law yet to be fulfilled. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. There are still elements of the law yet to be fulfilled. Christ will fulfill it all, but some of it has to be fulfilled during His second advent. So the law lives on today, but is fully fulfilled in Christ. So while the law doesn't die, the day I am justified by grace through faith, I die to the law. I am dead to the law. I am bound to no legal code. When Jesus died, I was legally declared righteous by Christ's legally satisfactory death. I was declared right in the law and thus dead to the law. And when I believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, I am freed from any guilt or obligation to a legal code. And I am freed to serve God from a heart of absolute love and devotion. But this is a kind of tough concept to understand, isn't it? We say we are free from the law, but we're still the group <laughs> with all the rules, right? We're free from the law, but we're still the group with all the rules. We say that we don't operate under a system of debt or of obligation, but we are, in fact, obliged to do what the Bible says. So what does living under God, that's what he says here, for I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Through the law I have been declared just by that very law, according to the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. So through the law I am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. What does it mean then to live unto God? And what's the difference between living under a set of rules and it's legalism versus living under a set of rules and it is living unto God? If it doesn't look like obeying a law, if it doesn't look like paying off a debt, if it doesn't look like a set of rules... What does it look like to live under God? Well, look at verse 20. I love this verse. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What does living unto God look like? It looks like death. It looks like you and I waking up every morning and deciding that this day is not about me, but about Christ. It looks like me so deeply loving Jesus Christ, so deeply investing in who He is, so deeply investing in what He loves, that I couldn't imagine not following His example. 
It means dying daily to what I want. Dying daily to what the world wants of me. Dying daily to anything and everything but what God wants of me. This is not slavery. This is service. This is not debt. This is freedom. This is not about rules and standards and laws. This is about knowing God, knowing what He has done for you, and loving Him so much that you simply pour your life back into Him. This is about yielding myself to Christ, not because I must, but because I want to, because I know Him, because I trust Him, and I understand that His way will bring me to a place which is far better than my way ever could. Young people, and old people, but but young people, living alive unto God is not about God asking you to give up the world. May I say that again? Living alive unto God is not about God asking you to give up the world. Living alive unto God is about God freeing you from the world. Look around at the world. Does the flesh have fun? Absolutely, it does. But truly, look at the world around us. It's an ugly, miserable place full of suffering and pain. Look at unbelieving marriages. Look at unbelieving homes. Look at unbelieving lives. Look at their sense of purpose. Consider their emotions. Consider their sense of security, their contentment, the the lack of joy. It's all lacking, if not completely missing. Young people... Living alive unto God is not about what you have lost because you're following Christ. It's about what you have gained. It's not about God asking anything of you. He's given it all to you already. It's not about you giving everything because God demands it. It's about you giving everything because God's way is so much better. This trust and love for the true and living God compels us to wake up every morning with a determination that we are going to live unto God, to walk in the Spirit, to keep down the sins that we've torn down. When we build them again, we make ourselves transgressors. Instead, we live as crucified Christians, buried with Christ, raised to newness of life, living in the flesh, but not living of the flesh, living in the world, but not living of the world, surrounded by the world, but separate from the world, dead unto the law, dead unto sin, but alive unto God. And notice what was said there. Dead unto the law. That's legalism. We're not going to find justification in the law. Dead unto sin. That's license. We are not going to use our grace as a means by which to sin. Much rather, living unto God. Living not for what I want or what others want of me save only for the one man that matters, living by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And as we finish chapter 2, we find Paul summarize his perspective saying, I do not frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The idea of frustrating the grace of God in the Greek, that concept of frustrating there, or the word frustrating, literally means to hold God's grace in disesteem or in contempt. When we submit ourselves to some false standard of legalistic morality, or we go the other direction and we live in licentiousness because of the grace that God has extended, we are disesteeming 
the grace of God. When we live a Christian life compelled by rules, feelings of debt and obligation and guilt, when we impose some legal standard upon how we live, what we do and what we don't do, when we treat other Christians with any level of contempt for what they are or what they aren't, when we build again the strongholds of sin in our lives and, and fall into uh, this grace this, this grace abuse, I might call it, where we say because we are under grace, we are free to sin. In all of these circumstances, we disesteem the grace of God. And when we do that, Christian, something even worse happens. Not only do we make ourselves transgressors, not only do we disesteem the grace of God in our hearts and lives, but our actions... Our actions make a theological statement which our hearts won't like. When we in action frustrate the grace of God and live under a false standard of gospel living, we marginalize the death of Christ in the eyes of those who are watching. If we as a church fall into some legalistic or self-righteous mindset of justification, we will be guilty of marginalizing the atonement of Christ in Buffalo. We tell the people of Buffalo that being a Christian is judged on the basis of doing rather than receiving when we live this way. About working Christ around me, not about dying to self and living unto God. Parents, when we fall into some moralistic form of living, we marginalize the atonement of Christ in our families. We tell our children indeed that being a Christian is about giving up what you want to do for what God expects rather than a life so consumed with appreciation and love for the God who loved you and gave Himself for you that you can do nothing but pour yourself into His priorities and desires for your life. The Christian life is driven by love, not guilt. By service, not slavery. By freedom not debt. And while we say this in our words, and there are few, if any, here who would say anything different, it might just be that, like Peter, our actions preach an entirely different message, a message which we really don't want spoken. Christian, God has designed a life for you that He Himself describes as fullness of joy. It is a life of trust, and rest, and peace. It is a life not prodded by an angry taskmaster poking you from behind and compelling you to move, but guided. As the psalmist said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Guided by the one who has taken every step himself that he asks us, to take. It's a life of service, not of subjection. And this life is the life of the crucified. The one who has died to his sin, who has died to the law, and walks in newness of life. And the question for each of us this evening is, how are we doing living the crucified life? What is the Christian life to us? Is it self-righteous moralism? Is it legal drudgery? Have we built again those things which were destroyed the day we accepted Christ as our Savior? Have we taken back what Christ has released us from? Place ourselves back into the shackles from which we have been freed? 
The joy of the Christian life is found only in submission, only in obedience, only as we reject the pressures and temptations of religious zeal or moralism, as we reject the allures of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and instead live unto God, allowing Christ to live in us and through us. Let's pray.